Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Birma. The success of a translator may seem to lie in going unnoticed. The translator ducks out of the spotlight so that the original author may shine. Mark Palazzotti challenges that idea in a provocative treatise on his craft called Sympathy for the Traitor, a Translation Manifesto, published earlier this year by the MIT Press. Palazzotti writes, quote, A good translation, created by a thoughtful and talented translator, aims not to betray the original, but to honor it, by offering something of equal, possibly even greater, beauty in its name. Palazzotti has translated over 50 books and is author or co-author of four of his own. He is the publisher and editor-in-chief at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. I'm joined now by Mark Palazzotti, author of Sympathy for the Traitor. Mark, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thanks a lot, Nathan. Glad to be here. I have a lot of questions to ask you about your book, but first let me ask you about your professional location, your vocation. You are editor and publisher of the publishing arm of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And so here you are, an author and a translator, and also an editor and a publisher. Uh, How did that come to be, and what's it like wearing all those different hats? Well, uh, what it tells you right off is that I'm a a thorough book nerd. Um, So... uh, I, I get to do that on weekends and on weekdays. I'm very lucky in that regard. Um, it really comes out of my love of writing, my love of books. Uh, I've been a publisher for about 35 years now, uh, which is uh, almost as long as I've been writing and translating. Uh, so the two of them really happen in parallel. Um, but one of the things that I find particularly useful about it, aside from the fact that I love publishing and I, I enjoy my job, is that all of these activities overlap and all of them inform each other. So, um, for example, what I would do as an editor informs what I do as a writer. What I do as a writer informs what I do as a publisher. What I do as a publisher informs what I do as a translator. All of them are ways of, of increasing my skills in, in each of them. Perhaps the obvious follow-up question is, do you publish translations? And when it came time to publish this book, uh, was there any thought of keeping it in-house? No, uh, no, I, I, I like to keep uh, church and saints separate. Uh, so my, my, my writing and my translations happen with trade publishers, and um, I, I work in art book publishing for my, my day job, so it's actually a fairly separate thing. So this book is called Sympathy for the Traitor, a translation manifesto. Perhaps a lot of readers are familiar with the Italian idiom that's behind this title, but for those who are not, who is the traitor, and why does he deserve, he or she, deserve sympathy? Right. Well, the title is a play on an old Italian pun, uh, which is uh, traditore traditore, which literally means translator traitor, or the translator is a traitor. Um, Now, who made it up, when it exactly came about, we don't know, but it has been around for quite some time. And it has been uh, one of those those mainstays of translation commentary. And uh, unfortunately, because it's so clever in Italian, uh, it also seems to have gained a, a certain amount of currency so that there are a lot of people who do feel that, in fact, the translator is always up to no good, uh, either through incompetence or through some kind of evil intent. And the point of my book and the title, uh, Sympathy for the Traitor, was simply to try to rehabilitate uh, the, the four working translators who, in fact, are 
up to, I think, a lot of good and are trying to do the best they can to bring literatures from other countries, other cultures, other time periods to us uh, in English, in my case, uh, in a way that uh, both respects the integrity of the original, but also speaks to an audience today, which I think is actually a fairly noble pursuit. You know, what's interesting is, as I've heard the idiom, and you've heard it and discussion of it a lot more than I have, but I've never heard it as saying that the translator is malicious, but just that being a traitor is inevitable. Translation is inevitably going to betray something that was there that cannot be conveyed into another language. Um, is that something to read into the idiom, and is that true of translation? Well, it is certainly something to read into the idiom, um, and to some extent, of course, it's true. You know, no translation is going to be exactly the same as the original. Um, that's that's an impossible limit. Um, but that does not mean that it's necessarily betrayal or that it's a diminishment. Uh, you know, this goes along with, of course, the other well-known uh, uh, expression about translation, lost in translation, which we're all familiar with. Uh, and so, again, the, the idea is always that something is being betrayed, something is being lost, something is somehow diminished in translation. And the point I'm trying to make in the book is that that's not necessarily so, that one can create a work that has a validity in its own right, uh, while at the same time respecting the integrity of the original. Now, part of this, to get, to get back to your, your point, uh, is based on the idea that there are such things as exact equivalences. And that's why I think we tend to think of a translation as a betrayal, because, of course, it's never going to be exactly the same thing. You know, language is, is uh, develops uh, depending on all kinds of factors, uh, culture and time and concept and uh, uh, the way people see the world, uh, you know, any, even uh, the latest celebrity scandal. I mean, there are all kinds of things that inform our understanding of how words work and you know, grammar, syntax, all of these things are, are different. So if we accept that and if we accept that language uh, requires a certain amount of adaptation, if one is going to translate from one language into another, then that liberates us from, I think, this very constraining idea that it has to that there's only one exact translation, that there's only one correct way of translating a book, which is never going to work out. Definitely want to dig into these themes further, but before we do, I want to uh, not let that little word manifesto in the subtitle uh, pass without comment. Uh, manifesto, I hear, and again, we're talking about how words land on your ear and what you associate with them, but I hear that as kind of fighting words. Here are the first principles that I will draw on a, a line in the sand for. Um, mm -hmm. Why is this a manifesto? Right. Well, a manifesto is really nothing more than a statement of principles. It's a mission statement. So, yes, uh, manifestos uh, tend to be, we tend to think of them as being fighting words, as being sort of belligerent. Um, that's not my intent. My intent is really to state a principle and to um, uh, to make a defense of, of uh, translation and to make the point that it is not... Um, an activity that is doomed to failure from the outset, but that's an activity that, first of all, should be celebrated rather than simply tolerated. Secondly, that it has validity in and of itself and in its own right. And thirdly, uh, part of the, 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 the manifesto and the polemic, if you, if you will, is to take issue with um, a lot of translation theory, which, as far as I can see, often tends to be rather self-defeating in the sense that it reinforces the, um, the perception that translation is by nature impossible. My feeling is it's quite possible. It happens every day, and sometimes it happens very beautifully. 
All right. So as you said, your main thesis in this book is that translation can have a validity unto itself. It's not just trying to uh, convey the original um, as directly and transparently as it can. It's out to create, at least when it comes to literature, an aesthetic effect uh, in the target language as it did in the source language. Let me give a couple key quotes from your book so that listeners can get a precise nature of your argument here. You write, quote, My goal is to offer readers the best likeness of the work that I can, retaining the quirks and personality of the original, but also making sure my version affords literary enjoyment in English, even if that involves a certain creative license. How controversial or debatable is that contention, and how risky is that view if it falls into the wrong hands of somebody who's merely trying to show off or, or uh, put their own stamp on something? Right. Um, well, it is controversial uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that there is a perception, so there's, a, there's an attitude that the original text is sacrosanct. Uh, you don't want to mess with it. Uh, and that comes from a number of different Factors. Uh, one of them is that um, we tend to think of the original text as being the work of an author's mind and soul and invention. And it is, in fact, all of those things. But the other thing that I, I keep wanting to point out to people is that in order to convey that mind and soul and invention, an author has one tool, and that is language. Words, little signs on a page. And that is exactly the same tool that the translator is working with. So while it is not my job as translator to reinvent the storyline or recreate the characters uh, when I translate a, a novel, for example, I am working with linguistic means and ultimately the same linguistic means, albeit in a different language system, that the author worked with. Um, and so my job is really to try to get under the skin of the, of the book, as it were, to try to understand how the mechanism of this expression works, how the author managed to convey to you, the reader, in the original language, the effect, the tone, the, you know, the emotional content, the feeling, uh, the voice uh, of, of, of the original work, and then try to figure out how to recreate that in a way that makes sense to my target reader in another language, another time period, perhaps in another context. Um, the other thing about this is that we tend to think of reading as a monolithic act. And I think this is something that we might want to think about a little bit more, because, you know, if one thinks that there's only one way of reading the original, and therefore any attempt to read a translation is going to be a betrayal, a loss. Um, well, then it, it has lost from the beginning. However, I think we can also look at reading as a much more dynamic act. So, for example, even in the original, no two people are going to read the same book in the same way. No one person is going to reread the same book in the same way. There are always things that you bring to a reading of a book through lack of attention or your own prejudices or your own understandings or your own misunderstandings or whatever it might be. So even in the original language, you're talking about a whole slew of different readings that different readers are bringing to it. I, as the translator, my job is to read the book, try to incorporate as much understanding as there can be in my reading, and then try to recreate a version that is going to be read by my readers with that same sense of, uh, you know, my understanding of the tone of the voice and, and of the of the feeling of the book, and but that too is a dynamic act. 
Yeah, so this question that keeps coming up through your book is what does it mean to be equivalent? And many readers, perhaps many even authors and translators, assume that equivalence means a lexical correspondence between each lexical or phrase item from one language to another. And as you say, there are all these other kinds of equivalences that need to be accounted for. Uh, But that view, whether you describe it as a literal or literalistic view of translation and equivalence, you call it exact equivalence, and you talk about, quote, the utopian and counterproductive fantasy of exact equivalence. What makes exact equivalence utopian and what makes it counterproductive? Well, I mean, exact equivalence doesn't exist. Uh, you know, I, I think that what, what makes it uh, utopian is the idea that every word in every language has its exact correspondence in another language. Whereas, first of all, once you, you know, even with a, a fairly common word, let's say dog, which is an example I use in the book, dog means one thing in English. The word chien in French, although technically it still designates the same species, means something slightly different to a French person. It means something slightly different to a Spanish person. It means something slightly different, you know, and depending on whatever culture you talk about. So we have, you know, even just a basically straightforward word like dog, although I will translate chien into dog, I'm aware of the fact that this is going to have a slightly different resonance. Once you start getting into much more nebulous concepts uh, or uses of language or, you know, more elusive or subtle versions of uses of language, I don't know that there is such a thing as an exact equivalent because, you know, words have different words have different meanings in different languages. And on top of which words have, you know, uh, words have different synonyms. So, you know, for example, you might have a word in German, let's say a verb, and there might be one particular verb and there might be a way of translating it using one English verb. Uh, I think the example I use in the book is again, uh, which means to go. Well, I can translate it to go, I can mean to move, I can translate it to walk, I can translate it as any number of things that will bring, that will give you the idea of what the original author was saying. But depending on the feeling and the mood that I'm trying to strike in my translation, I have other words at my disposal. So already the idea that there's only one way to translate a word is, 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 is utopian. And I think it's very limiting, which is why I, I call it non-productive. And on top of that, as an English translator in particular, you note that you have a larger word stock to choose from uh, Mm -hmm. in some cases because English has a larger vocabulary than other certain languages, I guess due in part to the fact that it has both Germanic roots and roots in the Romance languages. Um, And so is translation harder, better, worse uh, when you're translating into English because of that? I mean, I personally find it a great benefit. Uh, you know, English is one of the richest languages uh, because of its uh, many diverse roots and the, the many different um, uh, languages and cultures that have fit into it, which gives us an extraordinarily large number of synonyms to play with. Now, it doesn't mean that I could just, you know, uh, use them catch as catch can, but it also means that there are nuances to different words that I have at my disposal. So if I'm trying to convey a particular effect, And again, I want to stress that this is because I have read that effect in the original. I'm not trying to make it up myself. I'm not trying to impose my own point of view, uh, you know, to the extent that one always imposes one's point of view. But uh, I'm not trying to recreate a book in my own image. I'm trying to create it in the image of the original. But the tools that I have at my disposal are frankly richer in English than they are in a number of other languages. And I see that as a benefit is something that we should should celebrate um you know one thing about translation sometimes that i I find a little bit um perplexing is that there seems to be a sense that one should honor only the original language whereas there's a kind of a, a distrust of one's own language and my feeling is that if you're going to be a translator as if you're going to be a writer 
you need to love your own language just as much as the other one. Uh, you need to, to feel all the resources that you have at your disposal, and you need to, to be thrilled by the fact that you have these resources at your disposal. A lot of these controversies you document in the book go back for centuries and were born when it came to some of the first questions of how to translate some of the classics from Homer and Plato and how to translate the Bible. And you talk about St. Jerome as almost literally the patron saint of good translation. Introduce us to St. Jerome and what was his significance in the history of translation? Right. Well, Jerome actually was, is the, uh, is the patron saint of translation. Um, that's one of his qualifications. Uh, translation, um, translators, librarians, and encyclopedists, I think, are his three, uh, his, his umbrella domain. Um, he's the patron saint of all of them. Jerome is known uh, and revered in, in translation circles as the translator of the Bible for the common person, the first time that the Bible was translated into Latin. Uh, his version was called the Vulgate, uh, so specifically meant for the common worshiper. Before this, the Bible had been translated from the um, Aramaic and the and the Hebrew into Greek, and that version was called the Septuagint. And it was the the legend went that it was translated by seventy two Hebraic scholars in seventy two days, all working independently, and somehow because this is the word of God and it was divinely inspired. They came together at the end of these 72 days and found that they had all translated it exactly the same way. So therefore, you know, you can't argue with that, right? And by the way, so, if, with your experience as a translator, if that really did happen, that would be a miracle. Uh, that would be absolutely a miracle. I don't believe it for a second. But, you know, this, is, this, was the, uh, this was the story that was given. And for something like 400 years uh, or, or more, uh, the, that version of the Bible was considered the authoritative version, uh, the, Greek, the Greek version. Um, Along comes St. Jerome, who decide, who understands, on the one hand, the authority that this, that this version of the Bible has, but he also recognizes something else about it, which is that it's a lousy piece of literature. It doesn't read well. It's very stilted, and it's really just not conveying much in the terms of um, emotional content. It seems very wooden. So he decides not to work from the Greek, but he goes back to the source text, the Aramaic and the Hebrew, and decides to translate it into Latin, but in a Latin that is accessible to the common worshiper. All well and good, but his fellow theologian, uh, St. Augustine, who was uh, the overseer of the church orthodoxy, in the book I call him the J. Edgar Hoover of his time, uh, got wind of this and was very upset because his feeling was, no, 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 don't rock the boat. We've got an orthodox version here. If you start retranslating it, there are going to be differences, and that's going to cause a schism in the church because some people are going to be following the Greek and some people are going to be following the Latin, and all hell is going to break loose. What you have here is really the beginnings of the same controversy in translation studies that has obtained now for centuries upon centuries upon centuries, which is the desire to be completely literal, in other words, this is the word of God, you don't play around with it, versus the desire to be accessible. That's great, but it has to read like something that people actually want to enjoy. It has to read like a work of literature. And that, that um, argument has been forever. It hasn't changed. So one of the interesting things in your book is when you bring some of your personal experiences to bear on your reflections, it's not primarily a personal memoir, but you do include some personal remembrances, uh, including some interactions that you've had with authors whose work you had translated or were in the process of translating. Could you give us an example of one of the most helpful or encouraging interactions you've had with such an author and perhaps an interaction that was not as helpful? Sure. Um, 
I mean, probably the, the most helpful is simply the matter of trust uh, and being able to build a relationship with an author, um, not necessarily on the basis of the actual translation, but getting to know that person so that you, so that I, as a translator, can have an even better feeling for who that person is. Uh, one of the, the relationships that I've most treasured in my professional life uh, has been with an author named Jean Echnoz. He's a French novelist, still a very good friend of mine. I, I started translating him in the mid-1980s. Um, and although we don't actually work together in that regard, we're still good friends, and I still see him when I go to Paris. Um, but one of the great things about that was that since we managed to you know, since we hit it off, since we became friends, um, it allowed me to really get a sense of who he was and what his speech patterns were on the page, but also off of it. And that, of course, allowed me to feel a lot more acutely uh, how the English should work uh, when, when I was translating him. What is less useful to me uh, are writers who, let's say, who try to second guess when their English is really not up to the task. Um, I won't name any names, but I've worked with a few writers in the past who either themselves or, you know, had friends who knew just enough English to be dangerous and would, you know, would start critiquing every line of the translation, usually on the basis of, well, this doesn't sound like the French, or there's a word in French that's a lot closer, you know, there's a word in English that's a lot closer to the word in French. And you can answer them and say, well, look, that's fine, but that's not what the English word means, because, of course, there are a lot of false cognates, or, you know, sometimes the rhythm of it is going to be different. And it's very hard sometimes to get through to those authors the idea that you're actually being served better, your text is coming through more faithfully if you allow me to make certain changes to it, because that's the tone that I've, that I've read in you, that's the tone that I'm trying to convey. Um, whereas if I try to use some of these words, it's, it's going to sound, well, it's going to sound like poor English for one thing, which is not going to help anything. And sometimes it's going to sound like gibberish. And there have been times when writers have insisted that I use a particular word, even though that word doesn't actually exist in English. So those are things that I find a little less than helpful. You also at times reflect on uh, cases from your own career, and as you've been at this for at least a few decades, um, you're able to look back with some dissatisfaction at some of your earlier translations, including one, at least one case where you were had the opportunity to retranslate a work that you had translated previously. I imagine this gives you the sense, the deep and abiding sense that translation is never finished and is always a work in progress. Is that a motivating feeling? Is that an unsettling feeling or some of both? I mean, like any piece of writing, you know, you, you just abandon it at a certain point. It's never really done. Uh, translation, no less so than anything else. Um, yes, you know, there comes a moment when I think you realize you can't see anything more to do at that at that time. Or the publisher is simply, you know, sort of calling and saying, look, it's time to, to send it in. Um, but I have made my peace, I suppose, with uh, the fact that a translation is never really done. And one of the things I, I try to take as, a, as a, um, a rule of thumb is that once the book actually comes out, don't look at it again, because inevitably I can open it to almost any page and I'll find one little phrase or one little word or one little something. You know, there won't be a mistake, but it will be, you know, I, I'll, I'll feel that I could have done it better. Um, and, you know, are there translations I wish I could redo? Sure. Uh, you know, plenty of them, especially some of my earlier ones. And one or two of the really early ones in particular, um, I wish I could go back and take from scratch. But, uh, you know, that, that's called growing, I suppose. 
you look at cases where a translator captures the voice and effect of an author, even where quibbles can be made about um, individual wording choices. Uh, I think the example that stands out, I believe it's Moncrief translating Proust, and you say, here's a translator, and this has been apparently widely recognized, that this translator caught the spirit of the work and the spirit of the author, even though numerous quibbles can be made. Um, Can you give us a sense of what it's like to try to translate the voice of an author? How do you know when you've done it, and how does that come to bear sentence by sentence, page by page, as you work? Yeah, I mean, how does you know? I, I I don't know that there's any actual set answer for it. Part of it is instinct. Uh, part of it is just your your own feeling. I, I I don't mean to be vague, um, but as much as I tried to quantify it in the book, ultimately what it does come down to is: Do you feel the text? And if you can feel that text, can you feel it in the version that you produced in English? And to me, a lot of it really does come down to, you know, I know how I've read the original. When I read back my English translation, do I? react to it in the same way? Do I feel it in the same way? Is that reading experience similar to me? And if it's not, then that means that there's still work to be done for a variety of reasons, because the tone is not quite right, because the economy of language is not quite right. Um, You know, uh, I've been working uh, for the last several years on books by um, Patrick Modiano, uh, the, the French novelist who won the Nobel in 2014. And one of the things that really distinguishes Modiano's prose, two things, one of them is a kind of a, a sense of wistfulness and, um, and, you know, a kind of a sadness that underlies no matter what he's talking about. The other thing is his incredible economy of language. He says so much in so few words. And so what I'm constantly looking out for when I'm translating his books is on the one hand, trying to preserve that sense of wistfulness, which sometimes can mean, you know, rearranging a sentence or figuring out a, a word with a slightly different sonority that conveys that tone better, you know, whatever it might be. And also trying to maintain that economy of language. Um, it's interesting because uh, the rule of thumb is that French runs about 15% longer than English. It takes about 15% more words to say the same thing. Well, Modiano is one of the few French writers I know who can actually come out longer in English than in the original French. And so very often part of my job is to then go through the draft and just pare out all the excess words to really kind of bring it down, bring it down, bring it down to a very tight, very, very spare kind of language, which in fact is, is much more uh, appropriate and, and, and much more accurate for, for, for his work. Um, you know, Moncrief, I think, is a, is a great example because, yes, as you've said, many scholars uh, and readers uh, have found all kinds of mistakes. I remember reading an essay years and years ago when I was a student where um, somebody was talking specifically about his uh, Moncrief's translation of Proust, and they talked about an illustrated uh, French edition that had been brought over to English and they used Moncrief's translation. In one of the illustrations, you have a fellow holding a hoe or something like that. And in the translation, they used a completely different word, you know, a shovel or a trowel or something like that. And he said, here, you see, that shows that Moncrief didn't know what he was doing. Well, to some extent, yes, these are flaws um, and they can be and should be and have been corrected. Uh, Moncrief's translation has actually been revised twice over in its entirety by two other um, Two other translators, uh, Terence Kilmartin and D.J. Enright. So the version of the Moncrief that we have now has, in fact, been corrected and, and slightly revised for precisely these these mistakes. But at the same time, there was a certain tone and sympathy that Moncrief had. Um, you know, biographically, you could say part of it was that he and Proust shared a time period. Uh, they were almost contemporaries. Moncrief was a little younger, but not much. They both lived in a sort of Edwardian age. They both had... Uh, 
you know, they both came from the same kind of privileged background. Uh, they both had sort of complicated uh, personal lives, where on the one hand, they sort of had a public persona, and on the other hand, they had the um, the private life that was very hidden and, and um, lived in a very different kind of milieu than the one that they were known for. So there are all these different things that allowed Moncrief to feel almost viscerally what was going on in Proust. And I think that that still comes through in, in, in the translation. Now, as you know, Proust has been retranslated by a number of other extremely talented and competent translators since. Um, and one of them was uh, commissioned, one, one uh, translation was commissioned by uh, Penguin Books uh, about 15 years ago um, by a number of different translators. And I remember that when that came out, a, a reviewer was comparing the new version, which in some ways is, you know, much more accurate, much truer to, to Proust's tone and, and uh, you know, really tries to sort of do exactly what he does in French, in English. Uh, and the reviewer said, you know, for the Penguin translators, this is clearly a job well done. But you can feel that for Moncrief, who was a labor of love. And I think for that reason, there's still a lot of people who would rather read Moncrief than read the new translations. You have a few pages where you reflect on machine translation, and you note that machine translation is almost exclusively used for uh, technical, functional, uh, non-literary writing. And so machine, what machine translation does and what you do is apples and oranges. But it's interesting to me what machine translation is and the almost the philosophy of translation behind it. The idea is you can't teach a computer to translate, but you can teach it to analyze probabilistic patterns in language usage. Um, and, of, and of course, humans could never do that, but that's the idea behind how we want computers to approach this, again, for functional uh, linguistic purposes. How, how does that strike you as a, as a philosophy of translation, the idea that you can look at a big batch of data and find probabilistic correspondences, um, and, and that's, what, that's what's behind machine translation? Well, I mean, look, it's a tool. And, you know, as a tool, I think that there's, I'm all for it. Um, and, you know, and as a tool, and it will only get better and better over time, certainly the sophistication of artificial intelligence and the, the algorithms that, that govern the machine translation uh, are, are constantly being improved from the early days back in the, in the 1940s, when it was really, you know, pretty seat of the pants. Um, but even the people who do this, even even the heads of machine translation companies, in their own company statement will tell you this is really not made for uh, literary translation. This is meant to be used for um, you know, business documents, legal documents, that kind of thing, where in fact language is much more standardized and much more boilerplate. So you can certainly teach a computer how to recognize, you know, whereas the party of the first part, et cetera, et cetera, and, you know, and, and, and translate it accurately and correctly into, uh, into another language. Um, but that's very different from language that that rests on uh, nuance or that um, uh, sometimes violates the rules of standard syntax in order to get its effect. The computer doesn't really know what to do with that. The other thing to remember is that um, certain kinds of machine translation, let's say, for example, Google Translate, which a lot of people use. Now, that is wonderful if you're traveling. I use it all the time. If I can buy aspirin in a country where I don't speak the language, you know, I can tap it into my phone, show it to the pharmacist, and he'll give me some aspirin. Um, Great. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy for that. But that's very different from translating, you know, the opening paragraph of, uh, you know, of, of Marcel Proust. Um, what you do find if you go onto Google Translate is, is, you know, we need to remember that it's not really a dictionary. It's not really a translating software. It's a it's a search engine. So 
if I were, for example, to type in in French the first paragraph of Proust, I will probably get back something that actually sounds pretty close to Scott Moncrief. The reason I'm going to get back something that's pretty close to Scott Moncrief is, that in fact, the computer has gone out searching everything that's out there in the ether and figured out that what Scott Moncrief wrote corresponds to what I've just typed in for Marcel Proust in French, puts the two together and sends me back, you know, look, hey, look what I found. Well, what you found is something that a human had already created. If you take something that's much less known, let's say a book that's never been translated into English, and you type that in and you try to get Google Translate to, to um, translate it, what you're going to get back is something that sounds basically like those, um, you know, uh, instruction manuals that have been retranslated 15 times over from, you know, 18 different languages and make absolutely no sense whatsoever. And people have done this. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's an exercise that, that uh, uh, translators are fond of doing. Um, one of my favorite examples, which I uh, remember, was that uh, a Japanese uh, computer was asked to translate the phrase out of sight, out of mind. And what it came back with in Japanese was the equivalent of confined to an insane asylum, which if you think about it is a perfect way of actually translating out of sight, out of mind. But of course it means something totally, totally different. Computer couldn't tell the difference between that. So one of the significant linguistic developments of the last, I don't know, you could say generation, the last century, is the spread of English as a global second language. And I wondered if you were about to comment on that in the book, if you would comment on uh, how that would affect, let's say, the market for English translation. I can imagine it would diminish it since more people have ability uh, with English, or on the other hand, it could increase it because more people are reading English. Um, but I was really interested that you kind of took that question much deeper, and you said, what is the danger of a sort of global monoculture where cultural differences are erased or reduced to the point where uh, we don't have the cultural riches of different different cultures and different languages and different voices and perhaps different points of view. Um, I may not have summarized that very well, so I'm going to let you do that and explain what you see as the risks of global culture becoming too homogenized. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's a bit of a paradox because on the one hand, um, you know, our ability to access uh, points of view from other cultures, uh, you know, other other ways of thinking, I think is, is, is one of the great uh, benefits that we have. And one of the things that has made it more possible is, of course, uh, you know, things like the Internet, uh, uh, the fact that you can communicate with people around the world instantaneously. Uh, you know, it used to be, of course, that first of all, just even getting to know those people was almost impossible. You had to, to translate uh, travel or whatever. Uh, then communicating the, with them was a long and cumbersome process if you did it. Now, you can talk to people in China, you can talk to people in the Middle East, you can talk to people in Latin America, you know, with a push of a button. And that's all great. Um, and that does translation as well, because it's, that helps sensitize us, I think, to the fact that there are other cultures, other points of view, and we might actually want to be interested in them. On the other hand, and at the same time, as these communications happen, and I'm saying this perfectly aware of the fact that these communications are happening in a way through translation very often, it also poses the danger that we become so used to a kind of an exchange that that exchange begins to flatten out the actual differences that do exist between cultures and points of view. And, you know, I think of this when I go to travel to pretty much any country, you know, you're going to see uh, and of course, it's commerce as much as it is translation, but you're going to see, you know, the same Starbucks, the same Apple store, the same, you know, uh, the same commerces that you can find pretty much in any uh, decent sized town in the United States. And at a certain point, you start thinking, you know, what is the value of going to a different culture if you're not, even, you know, or a different country, if you're not going to find anything that different? 
Now, of course, that's, you know, a slightly apocalyptic, exaggerated scenario. We're not there yet, thank goodness. But it is something to keep in mind because the flip side of uh, translation and the flip side of that kind of increased communication and increased awareness that it gives is a kind of a flattening at the same time. Uh, and the danger is, in fact, that we can start beginning to think that all countries think the way we do and all cultures think the way we do. So what I'm really looking at in a translation is one that reflects the diversity of points of view in the world and that promotes and highlights the difference of points of view in the world and, in fact, tries to honor them as such and lets us uh, understand that, in fact, there are differences and these differences are worth preserving. Is it fair to say that the very existence of translations and the very existence of translators uh, is a sort of built-in reminder that there are these differences that uh, take some effort or take some means to bridge, and and they're not all just immediately accessible to us, and that that's a good thing, a good thing to be aware of that? That is a good thing, and it is something to be aware of, and I think you're absolutely right. It does take a certain amount of thought on the translator's part to bridge them, because sometimes a way of expressing something or a way of thinking about something could appear very, it could appear incomprehensible to, let's say, an American audience. And so one of my jobs, even with a culture that is so familiar to us as French, uh, you know, there are a lot of things about French culture, point of view, mentality that are not necessarily um, immediately understandable or, or, uh, you know, immediately assumed, let's say, by an American reader. And that sometimes as a translator, I need to figure out just a, you know, a slightly subtle way of getting in a tiny bit of you know, explanation or, or, or nuance uh, that will make that particular point of view um, understandable to the American reader. There's a there's a term in translation, uh, stealth gloss, which is uh, basically like a little word that you might slip in or a little, you know, little mention that doesn't seem like you're footnoting the text, which I find particularly intrusive, but at the same time just allows you to understand what's going on in a way that, for example, a French reader might just simply know instinctively that an American would not. Finally, Mark, I have to ask, do you expect that this book will be translated? And does that possibility, do you find that possibility at all unsettling or enticing? What do you think? I, I would, look, I'm a translator. I would love it. Um, but at the same time, I think that uh, I, I might well have written the only untranslatable book there is. Uh, <laughs> so, so as much as I like to think that anything can be translated, when I think about a book that's about translation and that uses examples of translation, especially into English, what it would basically mean is having to recreate that book in every other language that it would be translated into. Now, I could flatter myself and say, well, I have things of value to say that apply, you know, throughout. Uh, but I would be, um, well, let's say I'd be thrilled but surprised if another publisher wanted to take it on. Well, I must say, I mean, the examples wouldn't work, but uh, the rest of it, the, the prose is uh, beautiful and well-crafted. And it made me think, on the one hand, this book would be very difficult to translate because the prose is so carefully crafted. And at the same time, the message of the book compelled me to say it must or it should be translated. I think that's, well, to, your, I think that's to your credit that both of those things occurred to me. Thanks very much. I, I sincerely appreciate that. Well, Mark Palazzotti, the book is Sympathy for the Traitor. Really enjoyed the book and enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks for your time today. Thanks very much, Nathan. I enjoyed it. Mark Palazzotti is the author of Sympathy for the Traitor, a translation manifesto, published by the MIT Press. Palazzotti has translated over 50 books. He is the publisher and editor-in-chief at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I'm Nathan Birma. You've been listening to New Books in Language, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.